0: With us, we have Dr. Russ McCullough, the founder of the Gourney Institute and Wayne Angel Chair of Economics. We have Dr. Justin Clark, the Bernard Family Professor of Philosophy and Ethics. We have Dr. Peter Jacobson, the Gourney Professor of Economic Education and Research. And finally, my fellow graduate assistant, Austin Mellon. All right, so we have a special guest today. Dr. Rachel Ferguson is on our campus to give a talk tonight about her new book, and she is what are you? This is number four for podcasts. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> she is our record holder right now in the Guinness Book for the number of podcasts with, the, with our faith in economics. And so it's great to have you on again. So, Dr. Ferguson is the director of the Free Enterprise Center at Concordia University, Chicago, assistant dean of the College of Business, and professor of business ethics. She's an affiliate scholar with the Acton Institute and co author of Black Liberation Through the Marketplace. Hope. Heartbreak and the promise of America. Her commentary has been featured in the Christian Post, the Act and Power blog, Discourse Magazine, Law and Liberty, Econ and the online Library of Liberty, as well as the National Review. So it is exciting to have you on. She got her PhD in St. Louis at St. Louis University and her undergraduate degree in Lindenwood. So she's been a, a rock solid part of the St. Louis area for a long time. And so, Rachel, it's great to have you on again. Thanks for having me. All right, so tell us uh, maybe a quick overview, and then uh, this podcast is really designed to allow the students who participated in a book club. So everybody who's in the room here has read her book, and uh, we had some great discussions over three different meetings. And so we thought it would be great to have uh, Rachel give kind of a brief overview of the book, and then we're just going to jump into some student questions. So...
1: Yeah, I think my co-author Marcus Witcher and I were especially motivated by just how polarized our political conversation has become, particularly around issues of race. And we are both classical liberals. So we're limited government type people. And I think there's a general assumption that if you're going to be pro-Black, you're going to be big government. But we actually knew that there was quite a legacy of limited government thinkers who fought for Black rights from an individualistic perspective. And we wanted to highlight that legacy. We wanted to show how pro-free market, pro-limited government perspective could also be pro-Black. Going back and looking through American history and also thinking about uh, solutions for the future that we think will actually be effective.
0: All right, great. Well, let's just jump right into questions because that'll help kind of shape the conversation and get into various topics of the book. So Lex, you're up first.
2: Do you have any ideas about why in the case of the Native Americans, they have received land and ample educational opportunities for retribution of their colorful history with the country as compared to African-Americans, though they share a very similar colorful history?
1: Boy, that's a fascinating question. So I was surprised to find as we sat here chatting before the podcast that we have four tribal members in this group because Ottawa University has such an interesting history with honoring its promise to... Uh, To tribal members. So, this is such an interesting uh, thing that I've never actually been asked before. (laughs) Yeah, that's an interesting question. Why were their claims given the kind of attention that they got as opposed to uh, Black Americans' claims? And I would say that it's probably because this is off the top of my head, but I think it's probably because of slavery. So, because Black Americans were enslaved, over time, basically people began inventing racism as a way to justify that economic system. And so first you had a kind of somewhat casual sort of view, for instance, in the founding era, where people generally thought that, you know, Black people were more primitive or something like that, but they, they knew that slavery was wrong, that it was a, it was a quote unquote, necessary evil. And some of the founders actually thought that it was really dangerous for the Republic, that it could spell the doom of the Republic because it's, you know, obviously it's incompatible with a free society, right? And so they knew that it needed to end, not all the founders, but some of the founders knew that. But as you see racism developing over time, you actually see it getting worse in the 1820s and 30s, where you start hearing slavery referred to as a positive good. You don't actually hear that until like 1828, and now you start seeing Southern planters resurrecting the idea, Aristotle's idea of natural slavery and saying some people just can't rule themselves. They're like children, right? I'm like the father, the familias, you know, who's going to take care of these poor people. And that was a kind of a new development and it was developed because of abolitionism. So because the abolitionists were making a pretty good case against slavery as an immoral institution Southern planters were scrambling to, uh, yeah, to make a, a different case in defense of slavery. And then eventually in the late 19th century, you see the rise of scientific racism based on a kind of social Darwinism, right? So it almost, the theories of racism get worse and worse and worse, such that I think when Black Americans begin to make their case, for instance, for 40 Acres right? That's entertained for about nine months before it's quashed completely. There's already such a an ingrained concept of these people as really having no claim to the same rights as others because of the color of their skin, which was associated with just needing to, to maintain this economic institution, where with Native Americans, you don't necessarily have that particular feature. Now, I don't mean to say that the land rights that were awarded to Native Americans were handled in a way that has worked out very well for them, right? And so there's a lot of problems with the incentive structures in, in uh, tribal lands that make it really hard for people to build wealth and kind of to improve themselves. And so I don't know that that particular way of approaching things worked well either, right? But but it didn't have that aspect to it. Like, yeah, so off the top of my head, I'd say that's probably why. Yeah, great question. Anna?
2: So my question specifically is more in relation to chapter 10, uh, where you talk about contact with the police and racial disparity. And we discussed this in our book club, the idea that people have been saying like defund the police. And you kind of touch on it a little bit with you talk about how that the relationship between like individuals like contact with the police was also very harsh uh, during the time. And I was just kind of wondering what your take on that was, Mm because a lot of our interpretation, I know Donald was saying during that um, during that meeting was, you know, when we say defund the police, it doesn't necessarily mean abolish the police completely. It just means those reallocation of resources. So I was wondering where you think that police reform, Mm -hmm. what would be the best way to go about it? And your just take
1: on that as well. Yeah, yeah, great question. So unfortunately, I think the phrase defund the police has become toxic. (laughs) I think, you know, like abolish, you know, abolish prisons, right? Or something, it sounds... Totally revolutionary, because in some cases people are being revolutionary, right? They, they they want to, you know, literally just take the budgets out for police. I think that the more interesting suggestions are are actually really worth talking about. So having a separate group within the police or a group of social workers, for instance, who do wellness visits, that sounds like a very good idea to me in other countries, police that deal with violent issues don't do traffic stops. Traffic stops is its own separate job, right? Mm -hmm. And so what that means is that traffic stops aren't about finding drugs. They're about speeding. (laughs) And so it, it makes the whole interaction different, right? And so the way that we have policing set up right now, we are putting police in a position to have constant negative contact with the community, and we are doing it. So part of what we're doing is what I call in the book over right? We're criminalizing so many normal aspects of life that everybody is up in everybody else's business. That is, it is just a recipe for disaster. And then we switched from more of a neighborhood policing kind of beat cop mentality where you're, you have a particular block, you're talking to the neighbors, you know, people, you have a relationship with them to hotspot policing where you're just sitting in a car. Right, and you just see this everywhere. You do, these guys just sit in a car, and uh, and they don't necessarily know who they're who they're dealing with, and so it's very it just increases the tension more and more and more, and so I'm actually very open to some of these ideas, right, about splitting up the things that the police do. Every, you know, one person who's trained in one thing can't do all of these things, right? They can't be a social worker. They're a policeman. And so we're asking something almost impossible, I think, of policemen and putting them in a really bad position. I'm also a huge campaigner against uh, qualified immunity. So qualified immunity is judge-made law, um, meaning that it was just a, a court decision that was made in the late 60s that allows allows a policeman to argue that uh, they can't be sued for violating someone's civil rights because there was never a case that looked exactly like that case before. And that sounds nonsensical because it is. It just it really doesn't make any sense. Obviously, if you violate someone's civil rights, it should be also a part of my civil rights that I can sue you for that. But you can't. And so I think what that does is it actually distorts the incentives of creating the police force. And so the people you hire or the people you don't fire or the people you just, you know, shove over to another police department somewhere else after they've gotten hit for violating civil rights several times, that your incentive structure is messed up there because you're not actually incentivized to hire the right kinds of people, fire people when they, you know, when they get in trouble and so forth. I think that the evidence, you know, Roland Fryer's work, right, is very famous in this arena. And conservatives love to point out that he says that black and white people who come into contact with police are killed at the same rate. Okay, and that's true. He does say that they're killed at the same rate as one another. It looks like that's true in the data, assuming that we can trust the data we have. Right. Which is a big question. But what conservatives like to ignore in in his uh, analysis is that black people are consistently treated worse. So putting aside being killed, they're more likely to be roughed up and things like that, right? And so, uh, or the disrespectful treatment, even given the same behavior, right? So you can even adjust for how the person is behaving in response to the police officer. Now, whether or not we can figure out how much of that is race and how much of that is class, I don't know. Right? Is it is it true that this, this is just done in certain neighborhoods, for instance? Right? Because of some cultural thing, so it's hard to analyze that. But the point is, is that black people are dealing with that, right? That's absolutely right. They are. My contention is that the solution to that is not diversity, equity, and inclusion training, mm-hmm. because DEI training has a really bad track record. It doesn't really do a good job of achieving even its own goals, oftentimes. And so, a lot of these, for instance, I met the policeman in Ferguson. And they you know, the Justice Department came in and, and scolded them all because they needed to take more DEI training, and they walked out of the room because they already had all those DEI trainings. So they were still mistreating people, and I saw them do it, even though they had those trainings, right. And so I think we have to go down deeper to the root causes such as overcriminalization, such as screwed up incentives because of qualified immunity and things like that to really root out the problem rather than trying to kind of band-aid it with trainings.
0: All right, so I just want to uh, let the listeners know there's one non-student. Everybody you're hearing ask the questions are students, but we also have our dean of student affairs, uh, Donald Anderson, with us too, who joined us in the book club. So, Donald, you've got a question.
3: Yeah, I got a two-part question. One, just kind of more surface level. Why do you feel it was necessary, you you and Marcus, necessary to go to so in depth with some of the atrocities, with the explanation and all that? Was that done intentionally to explain? Because that was I don't remember what chapter it was, but a few of those chapters were chapter a little bit yeah, harder to read because of mm-hmm. your visualizing a lot of the things that you're reading. Was that done intentionally for impact or is that, that was kind of my first. Yeah. Now,
1: Marcus is the main author of chapter four, which is the chapter on atrocities. But I think I can speak for him and say it was really, really important to us to be pretty blatant and pretty honest about those atrocities. Because what we're trying to show in the book is that we can tell the truth about the ugly parts of American history without giving up on the American project. And so I think the polarization we see is that one side wants to say our history of racism is so ugly that it completely undermines the American project, that it's so fraught with racism that we can't redeem it. Right. So that's one you might say, like ta Coates. Right. Mm-hmm. He seems to be spiraling into a kind of despair where he's even saying, you know, I don't want my children playing with white children, right? It's like pretty intense. And then on the other end, you can have really whitewashing kind of versions of our history, right? Where everything about America is heroic, right? And and we want to paper over. And the example I give here, and I, I hate to say this because I have many wonderful homeschooling Christian friends. But there is a series of books, you know, the Abeka books, right, which are very popular among homeschooling educators. Very good, very good on math, very, you know, it's it's good in many areas of curriculum. But when you look at them talk about slavery, it's all about benevolent masters. They even talk about Black people coming from Ham, you know, the old curse of Ham theological idea, which was a huge racist part of the of church history there's it's really pretty egregious right they don't really want to face the truth about lynching about riots right about the envy of white communities who didn't like the fact that black people were succeeding those sorts of things so we felt like we've got to show that we can do both at the same time we can say the the liberal American project right the project of limited government and free markets is worth pursuing and that these atrocities was a but represent a betrayal of that tradition and we need to return to that tradition rather than let that tradition go and try something new and
3: yeah. this second question maybe one well, maybe it'd be better to end on but more or less what do we do now so you offer some solutions but how do we take information that we gain in this book how do we then use it as this student, uh, as the students are the future change agents how do they use it now to make substantive change to, to improve you know the situation for their children or their generation so how do we yeah education is one but then how do we implement
1: Yeah, I think each of you and I don't I don't think I asked you students about your majors, but I can think of ways in which different majors or different interests could feed into different ones of the five solutions that we discussed. Mm -hmm. So, for instance, in education, we live at a very exciting moment. I think that education is being blown open for lots of entrepreneurial experimentation. And so the ability to run micro schools, learning pods, charter schools, right? We're seeing 30 states passing school choice. And I see so much, I think the accusation is that, you know, this is only going to to uh, benefit the privilege. And I don't think anything could be more wrong. Most of the charter schools and other school experiments that I hear about are experiments being done specifically in under-resourced communities. Um, It's very exciting. Check out the work of Ian Rowe at American Enterprise Institute, his book Agency. He's running schools in New York City. Uh, My friend, Reverend Corey Brooks in Chicago is starting a school for boys and then one for girls eventually. Really exciting stuff is happening. So, that's a huge area that people can go into either as an entrepreneur or as an educator. I think that criminal justice reform is going to be really important for policy people and particularly local politics, right? Who you choose as your prosecutor is a local thing. How you run your police and which, you know, which towns come together and have which kinds of policies is a local thing. So as citizens, but also maybe as local politicians and other kinds of policy wonks, I think that's a really huge arena. I think with regard to economic freedom, that's mostly going to be policy wants, right? And so it's going to be the Cato Institute, you know, and places like that. But my friend Shamed Dogan worked for 10 years to make sure that African hair braiders could actually braid hair without having to go to cosmetology school and spend $20,000. And he's just a local politician in the St. Louis area. So there's a lot of good work that can be done there. When we look at the more civil society kinds of solutions, historians, if any of you are interested in history, The the idea of transitional justice and institutional memory. How can we properly remember and do justice to our history, record the experiences of Jim Crow survivors, understand both their triumphs and their traumas, right? And particularly in our local area, right? And how can we get those things into our institutional memory, into our libraries and our universities before these people are gone? I mean, many of them are still very much alive and kicking and this is the time to be doing this. So transitional justice is so important for historians and then every single person no matter who you are and what you're interested in can be involved in neighborhood stabilization. So I'm really obsessed with neighborhood stabilization which has to do with the kind of organic block by block long-term commitment that we need in order to recover from really just the terrible slew of of policies that people have suffered from over the last 50 years and That means everything from serious Christian believers who are being called as almost like missionaries to live in an inner city neighborhood and walk with neighbors and take years and years to gain their trust. It goes all the way from that end of the spectrum to, hey, you're a business owner. And some of these young guys who've been involved in uh, the neighborhood stabilization organization need a job opportunity, right? They need a chance to show that what they've been learning at the community garden can be transferred over to your business. Or maybe you're a tax accountant, right? And to use an example from St. Louis, Tiffany's starting her daycare center, and she needs help figuring out all this regulatory stuff and tax stuff or QuickBooks or whatever it is that she needs to do to be a successful business person as somebody who's running a home daycare, right? And so that's something that you can bring from your own store of skills and support the people who are on the ground living on the street that that they're dedicating their lives to, to renewing. And so I think there's just a ton of things that people can be involved in in neighborhood stabilization. I'm on the board of Love the Lou. My sons work in the community gardens uh, all summer long and have tutored and, and participated in small groups, right? And so just, just being there and being present and being part of it can be huge hugely helpful.
0: All right. Well, that looks like a good place to take our break here. So when we get back, we'll continue on with uh, some of the other topics and questions from our guest here today. We'll be back in just a bit.
4: Ottawa University has an exciting new major, PPE, which stands for philosophy, politics, and economics. Each of these fields is interesting in their own right, but they intersect in ways that are important to understand, both individually and for your community. If you find philosophy fascinating, but want to make sure that your study of the subject is practical, if you enjoy economic analysis, but want to see how economic laws interact with moral principles, if you are interested in politics, but want to explore how economic and ethical realities constrain our political choices, you should consider the PPE program at Ottawa University. This spring, Ottawa University is organizing a PPE league competition or politics, philosophy, and economics. Students in this competition will compete leveraging the ideas of philosophy, politics, and economics in various events. If you're a professor or an advisor of college students and you're interested in your school competing in PPE league this spring, contact Peter, Justin, or Russ today.
0: By 2030, the Gortney Institute will be known for its alumni, supporters and participants who incorporate economic understanding with their faith in their careers, vocations, communities and personal lives. We have some great programming going on for high school students. We have an online microeconomics class. Yes, you can earn college credit for $200 by taking an online class. It's affordable, flexible, layered with support. Our new online micro is optimized for you. If you'd like to consider some events for your high school students or that class, please contact Justin, Peter, or Russ today. All right, it's great to be back here with Dr. Rachel Ferguson talking about her new book. And uh, Justin has a question that he would not tell me ahead of time. So this is my <laughs> way of saying, Justin, take it away. <laughs> great. I'm sure it's a great one. So
4: you mentioned this, uh, this term in the first part of the discussion. And for, for the readers, I want. I think such a great part of your book is this discussion of civil society and what civil society is and the ways in which Black Americans were, in some ways, you know, prevented from establishing civil society in the marketplace and then the ways in which they kind of adapted through the Black church. And so I was wondering if you could explain, you know, for everybody what what exactly you mean by civil society and then talk about the ways in which this was constrained and the ways uh, it developed even despite those constraints.
1: Yeah, great question. So I'm interested in using the term civil society as neither the government nor the market. Now, some people don't don't like my my way of slicing and dicing it, but it's important to talk about arenas in our lives where we're not buying or selling. Right. And then also we're not it's not based on coercion. Right. So whatever the government does, even if it's necessary, it is based on coercion. Where are the areas in which we're voluntarily coming together, but not in a way that involves buying and selling? And so, obviously, the most fundamental one is family, right? Family is totally a matter of voluntary uh, cooperation. And then we might go on and talk about church, but also any other kind of club, right? So Alcoholics Anonymous is civil society. Your community garden is civil society. Your book club is civil society, right? And so civil society, to me, probably should make up what's really meaningful in our lives, right? We we buy or sell. I'm not saying that has to be meaningless, but we're primarily doing that as a means to some other end, right? To really live our lives with our families and our Our communities. And so, neighborhood is a really important concept within civil society. And so, yes, you're right. Black Americans were limited in really important ways. For instance, family formation under slavery was uh, broken apart in very cruel ways. What's interesting to me is that immediately after emancipation, Black people rushed out to do two big things get married to the people that they already, of course, felt they were married to, but didn't have legal status, and run out to become church members. So church membership goes through the roof and official marriage becomes really, really important. And honestly, until I believe it's somewhere in the 50s, black marriage rates are like 89% of of children are born within uh, a wedlock. Okay, and so that is an amazing recovery from a very, very cruel history. And I think it does have a lot to do with the black church, which I learned so much about in researching for chapter five. And one of the important things I learned is that black people, uh, enslaved people were primarily and free, actually, and free blacks were primarily converted during the uh, Great Awakenings. And so they weren't converted by their slaveholders who were mostly like unchurched Anglicans and their slaveholders actually felt that they didn't want to convert them because they might have a good case for freedom if they were like brothers and sisters in Christ, right? There's some things in the Old Testament that made that look like, you know, you'd be in trouble if you enslaved your brothers and sisters in Christ. And so they actually were not very evangelistic. And instead, they were caught up in a lot of these tent meetings, you know, that we hear a lot of people became converted at this time into a much more zealous kind of evangelical sort of Christianity. But what's interesting is that when they went back to the plantation, many enslaved people were actually punished for their faith. Right, And so slaveholders didn't like it. They didn't want them preaching. They didn't want them praying. They didn't want them talking amongst themselves about religion. And so they had to sneak out in the middle of the night in these hush harbors and create systems of worship and prayer and singing and so forth, right, all among themselves. So it was very much an independent Black American thing, right, that formed on its own in an organic way. And they referred to the white man's religion, that term actually referred to the plantation missionaries, because the plantation missionaries were only allowed to say the things that the slaveholder told them they could say, which was usually about don't steal and obey your master. Right. And so, and they'd think to themselves, and we have some of this on record, I didn't hear nothing about Jesus. I didn't hear nothing about salvation, right? This isn't the gospel. They knew it was a false gospel. And so many of these black churches really come out of a much longer tradition of independent black Christianity. And that means that once emancipation hits, there is a fervor to learn to read because what do Protestant Christians love to do? Read the Bible. So they wanna read so bad, which means that they're teaming up with people in the North, the, the Southern churches are, and they are churning out literacy, right? I mean, it is an absolute fervor for reading. And it's amazing. And maybe the greatest leap forward in literacy in the whole world uh, thus far, that starting at almost zero in 1865, 80% of Black Americans are literate by 1930. It's like miraculous. It's an amazing accomplishment. And that comes out of the church, the church schools and cooperation with Northern missionaries and things like that in order to develop that. And then as you go on, you start seeing the development of these fraternal societies, which are kind of like insurance almost, right? Because once you're a member, then let's say you die, they'll help your your widow with funeral costs, or if you're sick, they'll help you get through that period where you're sick. It's like an early version of insurance. And of course, those sorts of institutions have, and all civil society institutions, have what you might call positive externalities. They have like ripple effects, which means that the main purpose of it might be this kind of insurance or something, But then it has all these other things that come out of it, right? So if I happen to know you and I'm networking with you through the Black Elks, say, I know that you're a trustworthy guy and I think I'm going to give you a no interest loan because I really believe in your business idea. Those organic things just come out of civil society institutions, just like having strong neighborhoods and strong families will have all other kinds of wonderful ripple effects. What that means, though, is that when those civil society institutions get crowded out by government provision you don't just lose that main thing, right? So when social security is the thing that ensures you, you don't just lose the main purpose of the, the Black Elks, right? You lose everything that came with it because now the Black Elks become, you know, it's more passe, right, or unnecessary. It begins to fade away and then you lose that network. And I also think that that civil society institutions among Black Americans were terribly attacked by the attacks on property rights through FHA redlining, urban renewal, and the building of the highway system, because you have kind of main streets that get just blown apart. And and so it's not just the violation of property rights, right? It's all the ripple effects of having that social capital that you had built up on that main street, having the highway plow through, separate you from everybody else and scatter you to the four winds. That's a really, really, terrible terrible thing to happen to those sorts of organic
0: communities all right so let's go to uh carter over here he's got another question for you okay uh going back kind of to the donald's last question if we, if we move into the kind of like right at the end of the book you talk about the reparations to mm-hmm. black communities and in that you stipulate that it, you had two two stipulations for it and that was first that reparations come from fundiums federal lands and secondly that reparations be given in the form of funding of capital investment to Black entrepreneurs and then direct descendants of slavery. And while you kind of laid out why you felt it should not be given just to like the whole Black community as a whole, what well, specifically makes you single out the idea of giving to Black entrepreneurs and then direct descendants of slavery?
1: Yeah, so there's a couple of important things things about my view of reparations that's super duper different from most views of reparations. One of them is that I don't think that on the whole white people benefited from the oppression of black people. I think temporarily a few may have benefited in very limited ways but i think mostly when you shut people out of the economy you actually screw yourself right because you you shut them out of you you shut yourself out of all of the great exchange that you could have done with them and all of their inventiveness and creativity so i don't want to just tax everybody <laughs> to fund reparations because that would just be adding injustice to injustice but as i said when when referring to urban renewal and the building of highways and fha redlining i think in the 20th century mostly the federal government is is the big boogeyman here It's the one doing a lot of the damage. And so it's the one who should pay. And it just so happens that the federal government owns a bunch of assets, $2 trillion worth of land and a bunch of other stuff too, most of which could probably be more profitably run by other people anyway, right? Ranchers or whoever, uh, loggers, we run it out to them now anyway. And so they have no ownership stake in what they're doing, which means that they're harsher with the land. It just all makes more sense to me. And so I'd rather fund it through sale of federal lands. And then I think that the the biggest and most frustrating remaining inequality, I, I think we've got a lot of inequalities. I don't mean to downplay them, but we're making, it's not been that long since the end of Jim Crow. It's really not been that long since the building of the highway system. So we're making good progress on things like income and so forth. I think the biggest, most frustrating sticking point is wealth, the building of wealth. You really see that huge wealth gap. Between black and white Americans. And what does that mean? That means if I want to make reparations for these awful things that were genuinely done to people, then I think we should focus on the thing that is like most hard to fix, right? Or the thing that doesn't seem to be happening already organically. And you don't transfer payment yourself out of that kind of poverty and wealth. It just doesn't work that way. And we know that from international economics, right? We can do all the humanitarian aid we want, and that will not make people rich. The only thing that will make people rich is homegrown business. And so since we know that people get rich through homegrown business, I want to do whatever makes the most sense to capitalize their projects now since the writing of the book (laughs) i've actually continued to evolve and so you can see some articles i've written online which i'm happy to send you guys i've continued to evolve on this because we know that the federal government is not good at assessing risk that's a local knowledge issue and so we don't want the federal government deciding who they give money to but we could have the federal government do certain things that would allow small community banks to actually flourish. At the moment, Dodd-Frank has actually crushed small community banks. Very hard to open. The processing fees are too high to really even help people out on small projects. And so we have set things up actually to make it worse to get up and get going and get moving on business or wealth creation with your home or things like that. And so get I kind of return to my general theme in the economic freedom section, which is getting out of people's way. We could remove some of those regulatory barriers and really allow community banks to flourish and, and fund those banks so that small business people and small homeowners can move forward. But I don't mean to say that we should you know, give people loans that they're not really able to pay back. We've made that mistake before. Let's not make it again, because we actually make them worse off in the long run. So we have to be really careful about that.
0: Lou? For me, my question is actually about reparations as well. So we can just kind of continue this conversation. How would you your ideas... If- classical liberalism fit into the ideas of reparations Mm -hmm. seems kind of large scale for classical liberal ideas so
1: Yeah, no, I think and and maybe, you know, I don't know that I've dug deep down into the distinctions between reparation and restitution and those sorts of things. But I think that if the federal government does, you know, violates your rights in really important ways, then the federal government should should pay restitution. And we see a really straightforward example of that in the case of Japanese internment camps. Right. I don't think anyone, hopefully no one disagrees with the idea that if I stole your land and I threw you in a concentration camp uh, and you're an American citizen, The least I can do is give you $20,000, which is what happened in the 1980s, right? And so um, I do think reparations are something that should be kept within a human lifetime. So I'm not talking about reparations for slavery. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about reparations for what has occurred in the last 80 years. And there's plenty to deal with there. Many of these people are still living. It's only their own children who have experienced the fallout of not having an inheritance, right? Or of not not having anything to build with. So my own grandmother, who I inherited a lot of money from. She was a very poor white person from North Carolina 10th of 10 during the Great Depression, but she was pretty smart, got to college, got to Eastern Airlines, invested really carefully and and did really well for herself. She got a college position and a job position that simply would not have been open to a black person at all, right? And so did my grandfather. Who, who became an airplane mechanic. And so now I have received this inheritance. So we're that close, is my point. We're that close in time. So that limits it, I think, in, in important ways. And I think the fact that we are holding, the, it's not the government is going to make up for every injustice that happened to you. It's the government is going to do something to deal specifically with the specific thing that they did to you the government, right? And so we try to keep it to maybe restitution would be a better word in a sense. What's tough is that, let's take property rights as an example here. If you, if, if the FHA redlining means that even if you wanted to buy your house, you couldn't buy your house because the bank wasn't allowed to give you a mortgage, then you ended up renting so that when urban renewal comes through, you're not an owner who needs to be compensated, right? Right. Now, some of those people did own their homes and they still weren't compensated. okay. but it's really not fair, right, that you weren't in a position to be compensated for that home just because you actually were never allowed to buy it in the first place. Right. And so there's a lot of ways in which I think we have direct harms that we can point to very specific. The the, the point is that the crime is concrete right it's not just that we made you feel bad for the color of your skin or something vague right it's a concrete violation of property rights contract rights or equal protection of the rule of just law and it's being paid by the people who did it right and so in that sense i think it's i think it's concentrated enough and it goes exactly with our classical liberal values that when you commit a crime you 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 have to pay for that right you have to come back and make restitution
0: so one of the things that an insight that i never thought about before was a distinction between martin luther king and malcolm x and i kind of i struggled to try to find the spot in the book where it was but it it essentially alluded to differences among blacks not just those two but others on how to handle the problems the the approach that they took so i was wondering if you could speak uh, i would like to hear what you say martin luther king jr versus uh, malcolm x but also maybe you can expand on on other people on different approaches to these yeah. awful things that have been going on.
1: Yeah. So I this is a really interesting, I'm very mixed on both figures, and I'll tell you why. So so Martin Luther King Jr. representing nonviolent political action. And let's be clear, he did not mean that you can't defend yourself. He had guns <laughs> in his home, right? Personally, you can defend yourself. It was a particular strategy, nonviolent political action, that he felt would would be healing. And I think he was absolutely right about that. And as a matter of fact, I think that most of Black America was with him and that Black nationalist movements that were more violent in nature were also more fringe in the Black community. So they were there. But I think it's easy. I think maybe in a lot of Black studies programs and things like that, the Black nationalist tradition can almost be held up as though it was more important historically than it really was in terms of how many Black Americans were interested in taking that route. I think that was a fairly fringe view. At the same time, I think that Malcolm X was uh, in a way more conservative than Martin Luther King Jr., right, Uh, in in an interesting way. So Martin, after the uh, 1964 Civil Rights Act and 1967, after the 1964 Civil Rights Act, what you see MLK do is move more towards, okay, now the next step is that the government will get involved a lot in our economic life in order to equalize us economically. And what's interesting about that is that he was actually at odds with huge parts of the Black church. So there was really a a split among Black churches in general where one side went to, no, this was what we wanted, right? We wanted our rights to vote, right, and be treated equally in the workplace and things like that. And now we want to build ourselves up, and that was actually more the Black Nationalist position. Leave us alone, let us build our own wealth. We're gonna, we need capitalists, we need Black capitalists. You actually have quotes, right, of people saying that. So not all Black nationalists; some were more communists, but many were were like that, right. And then, and then the other route went, no, we need kind of a constant stream of government intervention to keep on, um, you know, working towards equalization. And in a way, you know, it's, it's understandable with regard to the idea that, I mean, MLK was not wrong. The federal government did do a lot for white people, right? It gave away a lot of land. The GI Bill was useful to them in ways that Black soldiers couldn't really use their GI Bill, right? There were a lot of ways in which Black people did get kind of, I mean, White people, sorry, did get kind of a a leg up that Black people didn't get. So you can sort of see why he was saying, well, you know, we need this. But you did see him go in a more, a less free market direction, I guess you would say, in terms of understanding what would really build the Black economy. And you had some black nationalists who were who were more traditional in the sense of, no, let's build up our families. Let's make sure our communities are really well functioning, um, that we're we're mentoring our kids and strong morality and things like that. And then that's what's really going to help us to make it. So it's an interesting divide.
3: Follow up on that. So then what do you think of the notion that segregation would have been more successful than integration? Do you, do you subscribe to that similar to what you're saying uh, as that was Leave us alone, let us build our own communities and our own economy. Do you feel like then we would be in a better position if we were segregated versus integrating? I know that may be two separate things, but do you feel like segregation would have worked economically?
1: So I I don't think that because I understand the tension because you had segregation in a weird way is like protectionism, right? Because black people were only allowed to buy from black people which meant that black business was protected in a certain way because they had guaranteed customers which means it was very painful economically when we integrated the economy because now you were competing with everybody and you've been living under protectionism up until then okay now ultimately i don't think it would have been best to remain segregated i think people can can build up you know a, a culture that is independent and maybe integrated in some ways and not in others, and that's free for them, right? I think naturally, because of our history, Black Americans have kind of a separate culture or a subculture, we might say, and that's fine, right? That's just an organic, there's good good and bad aspects of, of the way that history played out there. The one case in which I, this is very, it's not like I have a strong opinion, but I think it's really interesting that Derek Bell, the founder of Critical Race Theory, agrees with Zora Neale Hurston, the very individualist, pro-capitalist, anti-New Dealer conservative, that they didn't really like the way that schools were integrated. And what they say there is that the Black schools were good, right? They were good schools. They were underfunded. They were often in bad shape, right? Bad books, bad buildings. But there was a lot of love between teachers and students. There was a lot of understanding And that they really, Derek Bell actually eventually said, you know, maybe if you would have just forced them to pay, to pay really, truly an equal amount to our schools, that would have been better than what happened. Because what happened was that the students integrated, but not the teachers, which meant that tens of thousands of black teachers lost their jobs, right? And these white kids weren't forced to have to deal with black teachers, but the black kids were forced to deal with white teachers who didn't understand them, didn't understand their culture, maybe looked down and then maybe were even hateful towards them. And that may have actually caused more alienation on the part of Black children with regard to education than had ever existed before. Because the Black community had always been extremely positive about education and educational achievement, And that's still true mostly, but you do have in the inner city, for instance, a little bit of a culture that's anti-education and one at least argument, it could be wrong, is the idea that that happened as a result of having to integrate, of having the children go through the painful process of integration rather than the adults, which I thought was really, really interesting. So how you go about the integration process could be where we'd want to kind of balance between the two, segregation and integration.
0: All right. Well, that looks like a good spot to wrap. Rachel, it's been so great having you on the podcast again. Look forward to your talk uh, later this evening. The book, again, is Black Liberation Through the Marketplace, and we'll have it in our show notes with links, and I encourage you all to read it. It's a a real eye-opener and uh, learning experience, and I think uh, every American should read that book. So Thank Thank you you so much. I hope
1: every American does. Amazon, $14. (laughs)
0: All right. Well, this has been a production of the Gorton Institute here at Ottawa University. I'd like to thank you all for listening. Five-star rating helps other people find us. And uh, please feel free to forward this podcast along to your friends and family members that might like to listen to it. Other than that, be fruitful and multiply. Thanks.